Dear Father in heaven, Father, thank you for the chance, God, again to be here at this conference and to open the Bible and to share these, these truths. Lord, you know, probably better than anybody, uh, that I am not worthy in myself to teach your word, but Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is worthy, and you've called me to share these truths all around the world. And we pray that you will help us, help me, help everybody here. May the Holy Spirit guide us and instruct us and teach us. And may this be your meeting, not mine. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, yesterday, we talked about the issues of the character of God and the imbalances, some of the currents that are even within our own church that are looking at the character of God in an extreme way, in a way that I believe is, uh, is, is unbalanced and actually a perversion of the truth that is described in the Bible. Uh, yesterday we looked at Exodus 34 and talked about uh, the description of God's character, that it is a blend of mercy and justice, and that really at at the, at the heart of, of who God is, is love. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. And I stated yesterday that my deepest conviction is that, that all of the manifestations of God's mercy are a manifestation of love. They're rooted in love. And it's the same thing with justice. The manifestations of God's justice are rooted in his love. Everything he does is rooted in love. And when we deal with these issues of the character of God, his mercy, his justice, how these come together uh, in the plan of salvation, there's no place in the Bible that, they, that these issues become more acute, more important for us to understand correctly than in the three angels' messages. Revelation chapter 14. We read yesterday that in verse 1, it talks about how the 144,000 are going to have the name of God written in their foreheads, which tells us that they are going to have God's character that is going to be accurately written and reflected in their lives. Now, the third angel's message in Revelation 14 is, is the most solemn message in the Bible. Here you've got on the screen a picture of the three angels. I think we all know this well, that the three angels really represent God's final message to the world. Revelation 6 and 7 is the first angel. Revelation... Uh, Chapter 14, verse 6 and 7 is number 1, verse 8 is number 2, and then verses 9 to 12 is number 3. Uh, we know that these messages represent the last message to the world because in chapter 14, verses 14 to 16, we have a picture of the second coming. And so the three angels give their messages right before the second coming. Uh, I've also done a, a lot of study on this, and uh, this is just a separate thought, but in, Revel in um, Matthew 24, verse 37, Jesus said, as it was in Noah's day, that's going to be the same. It's going to be the same when he comes. There's going to be parallels. And when Noah built the ark in his day, does anybody remember how many stories that ark had? It had three, right, three stories, three floors. It was a three-story ark. And Noah called people to come in to the three-story ark so they could be protected when the flood came. And Jesus said, as it was in Noah's day, it's going to be the same at the end. And Revelation 14 has 
basically a three-story message, kind of like the three-story arc. And God is calling people to come into this message and to understand it. And this message really reflects the mercy and the justice of God rooted in his, in his love. Now, in chapter 14, verse 9, we have the warning of the third angel, the last of the three. And verse 9 says, the third angel followed them, saying with what kind of a voice? With a loud voice, right? A clear voice. A loud doesn't mean that, that people are going to be shouting. Uh, it means that the message is going to be clear and powerful and penetrating. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worships the beast and his image and receives his, his mark. Now notice, where does the mark go? It says, in his forehead or in his hand. And then it describes what's going to happen to those people. We already read in chapter 14, verse 1, that the 144,000 have God's character in their forehead, in their foreheads, his name. In 14.9, it warns about not getting the character of God in your forehead. It, it warns about having the mark of the beast in the forehead. Uh, when you study the forehead in Revelation, it's used many times, and it's very clear that the forehead represents the mind, and that one of these days, everybody's going to get something in their foreheads. Here's a picture of somebody, try, this is trying to illustrate getting the mark in the forehead, and then there's the other person, the happy person, and that represents that person getting the name of God in their foreheads. Uh, if you look at chapter 22, Revelation 22, verse 4, it talks about the saved of all ages, God's people of all ages, who are with Jesus in heaven and in the new earth. And verse 4 says, they will see his face and his, his name, which again is his character, shall be in their foreheads. So um, what this is telling us is that eventually everybody's going to have something in their foreheads. God's people are going to get the name of God in their foreheads. And Satan's people are going to get the mark of the beast in their foreheads. So everybody's going to get something in their foreheads. And the forehead represents the mind. It represents the heart. It represents your character. And it really uh, impresses me that the battle that we're in is a battle that's going on right between your ears, in the back of your eyes, in your head. This is really the, the center of the battle. It's inside of us. Isn't that right? I mean, where does the battle take place in you? Right here inside your head. Uh, everything that you do is rooted in what's going on inside your mind. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So we have to guard our minds. We have to protect our minds. And we need to understand the truth of God in our minds and have the character of God in our foreheads instead of the mark of the beast. These are, these are the issues that are described in Revelation. All right, now let's go back to chapter 14. And let's take a closer look at the third angel. The third angel in verse 9 followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, then verse 10 says, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is a very solemn verse. Verse 10, those that get the mark in the mind 
get the wrath of God. And verse 10 says that this wrath is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. You can read Genesis to Revelation, and you will never find a more solemn passage than what we just read. These are very, very solemn words, and they're very graphic words. They're very um, uh, powerful words, descriptive words, and we need to try to make sense of these words. What does this mean? The same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God. Uh, I've done a lot of research in this, and as I talked about this yesterday, uh, there are different views in our church about the wrath of God. There, are, there, is, a, there is a movement within the Seventh-day Adventist church and many of the people that are involved in this movement are very, very sincere. And they're just, you know, they're as convinced as convinced can be that when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, what it really means is that God simply withdraws his hand and allows natural consequences to run their course. That's the way they interpret the wrath of God. Uh, and they base this on, on a number of verses, one of which is in Romans chapter 1. I don't know how many of you are familiar with these issues, but in Romans 1, it talks about uh, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven in verse 18, and it, then it talks about how because of the sinfulness of humanity, uh, God gave sinners up to certain things, to their wicked ways. And it mentions, I think, three or four times in Romans 1 that God gives, gives them up to this. He gives them over to this. He gave them over to this. He gave them up to their sexual sin, et cetera, et cetera. And people look at Romans 1 and they look at verse 18 that talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. And then they look at the other verses about God giving them up. And they come to the conclusion that that's what God's wrath means. It doesn't mean that God really has any particular uh, wrath at all. It means that he just sadly turns his back and allows natural consequences to take their course. Now, just for the record, uh, I don't believe that is a correct interpretation of Romans 1. I think they're, without knowing it, they're really twisting the Bible. Um, when it talks about God giving them up to sexual immorality, probably the best example of that is in Genesis 19 when it describes God giving up the sodomites to sexual immorality. I mean, he definitely did that, wouldn't you agree? That when Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, were doing what they were doing, that God gave them over to, to sexual sin. But that was not equivalent to his wrath. Uh, his wrath was not allowing them to do what they did. His wrath occurred when the fire came down from heaven and fell and destroyed those cities. And so people aren't looking at Romans 1 carefully enough when they really, uh, when they come to this conclusion. And I'm going to go back to this verse in verse 10 and look at some, some of the details here. And then we're going to go to the life of Christ. And I think it'll become more clear what this wrath of God actually is. Uh, again, verse 10 says, those that get the mark will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup. Look at these, these words carefully. Where's my little pointer? I need to get another battery for this because I think it's, it's almost going out, but it's still there. 
All right, notice this. God's wrath is poured out without mixture into the cup. Now, this word uh, mixture is very interesting. Do all your Bibles have the word mixture there? Poured out without mixture. As I mentioned, the character of God is a blend. The character of God is a mixture. It's a mixture of mercy and justice. All right. Now, when the Bible says that the wrath of God is going to be poured out without mixture, what does that mean? Without mixture of what? That's right, without mixture of mercy. Uh, God, ever since man sinned, God has been showering this world with mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy has been um, all around us all of our lives. If it wasn't for God's mercy, we would be dead. Uh, Ellen White talks about in The Great Controversy about the waves of mercy that are being beaten back by stubborn hearts. Waves of mercy. So God's character is full of mercy. But eventually, the time finally comes at the very end of the world when probation closes. The time finally comes when mercy comes to an end. Uh, in the writings of Ellen White, she talks about the angel of mercy folding its wings and departing, never to return again. She uses expressions in Great Controversy, in great controversy like uh, when the third angel's message closes, she says, mercy will no longer plead for the guilty inhabitants of the earth. She, she talks about mercy ceasing and justice kicking in, justice finally coming. And what this is basically saying is that God's wrath, which represents his justice, is poured out without any mixture of mercy, finally upon those that get the mark of the beast. That's what it's saying. So it's a warning of the time that mercy comes to an end and justice finally kicks in. That's what this is telling us. It's a warning about mercy ending and justice coming. And this is described also as a, as a brew, you might say, or a drink that is poured into, notice, without mixture into the what? It says into the cup, into the cup. Now this is very interesting. I've done a lot of study on this word cup. And I found out that there are really three cups, primary cups that are described in the Bible. One cup is this cup, the cup of the wrath of God. Another cup is the cup that the woman Babylon holds in Revelation 17, which is the cup of the wine of Babylon, which represents all of her false doctrines and her false teachings that she gives to the world. Now there's another cup which is in Matthew chapter 26. And that is a cup that Jesus offered his disciples the night before he died. If you remember, he passed out a cup to the disciples and said, uh, take this cup and drink from it, all of you. And inside that cup was uh, the pure juice of the grape, was an alcohol, we know that. It was, uh, it, was, it was grape juice. And that juice represented his shed blood for our sins. And so um, we could call that the cup of salvation. So we have the cup of wrath, we have the cup of Babylon's deceptions, and then we have the cup of salvation. And basically what's happening is when you look at these cups, you're seeing God's mercy in the cup of salvation, 
you're seeing his justice in the cup of wrath, and then you're seeing the false uh, doctrines of Babylon in the, in the cup of her wine. And Satan's trying to confuse us and mix us up so we don't understand God's mercy and his justice. And if we get all mixed up with the wine of Babylon and we don't understand God's mercy or his justice, there's a good chance that we're going to eventually get the mark of the beast and then drink the cup of wrath because we've rejected the cup of mercy. And all of these cups are woven into this verse. Now, when it talks, or at least all these issues, when it says that the wrath of God is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, um, that means that God's pure, undiluted justice is finally going to come to this world. Now, that has never happened in all of human history. All of the judgments of God in history have been uh, tempered or uh, mixed with some degree of mercy. God's mercy has been in there. And none of the judgments of God that have ever fallen upon this world, including the flood, including Sodom and Gomorrah, including at the golden calf, uh, none of these judgments have ever been the full manifestation of God's justice against sin. Because that only happens at the end of the millennium when the full justice of God falls because of people's sins. It's never happened at any time in human history except for one time, only one time. Can anybody think of that one time? What? That's right, the death of Jesus. It was, actually, it started in the garden. It started in Gethsemane. Because remember, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ also wrestled with a cup. Do you remember that? He prayed to his father and he said, take this cup from me. Now what cup do you think that was? What cup was Jesus wrestling with in the Garden of Gethsemane? It has to be. I mean, it wasn't the cup of mercy. We can exclude that. It wasn't the cup of the wine of Babylon, of false doctrines. It wasn't that. It, the only other cup left, and I can prove this clearly, is the cup of the wine of the wrath of God that is poured out without any mixture that's described in the third angel's message. Now, it's also significant when you go back to verse 10, Revelation 14, 10. The same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of who? in the presence of the Lamb. And who is the Lamb? That's right, it's Christ. And so what this is saying is that uh, at the very end, people who get the mark of the beast are going to drink the pure justice of God and it's going to happen right in the presence of the Lamb. Now, how do you think Jesus is going to feel when he looks at people who are finally drinking that final cup? Do you think that he's going to be excited? You think he's going to be, uh, you know, happy that they're finally getting what's coming to them? I don't think so. That's not going to be the heart. That's not the heart of Christ. Uh, he's going to be very sad and, uh, you know, I don't know what words to use, but it's going to be an agonizing experience for Jesus to look at these people going through this right in his presence. Now, as I've thought about this verse, I've come to the conclusion that 
as Jesus is looking at people who are lost, he's probably going to be thinking that, they, that this punishment that they are reaping or receiving was not necessary. It didn't need to happen. And that's part of the grieving that he's going to go through. As he looks at this, he's going to think they, they didn't need to go through this. And the reason why this didn't need to happen to the people that are lost is because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ drank the cup himself. That's the reason why. It's not, it's not something that was necessary for them. And the fact that the word lamb is mentioned in, right in the middle, it's at the end of verse 10 and right before verse 11. And verses 10 and 11 is the most solemn verse about the wrath of God anywhere in the Bible. Verses 10 and 11 put this graphic, this graphic description together and right in the middle of verse 10 and 11 is a statement about the lamb. And that just impresses me that Jesus is right in the middle of this message. He's right in the heart of it. The Lamb of God is in the heart of the third angel's message. And I believe that the purpose of the third angel's message is to reveal to us the Lamb of God. It's to bring us to Jesus. That's what it's all about. It's not just a message of wrath, but it's a message of Christ. You've got wrath in verse 10, and you've got lamb in verse 10, right? They're both there. Justice and mercy are in the same verse. Now, uh, let's go back to Matthew chapter 26, and let's try to get a little more insight into what's going on here. Matthew chapter 26. These verses that we're going to look at right now describe what happened right before Jesus entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 30, after he passed out the juice and passed out the bread, in verse 30 it says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And as they, were, they left the upper room and they went down probably some stairs and went out, some door and wandered their way through the streets of Jerusalem. They went out an eastern gate. They crossed a little creek, and then they went up a hill, heading toward the Mount of Olives, uh, heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane. They were on the Mount of Olives. And as they approached the garden, verse 31 says, Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. This is an amazing verse in verse 31. And I want to read to you a little bit from Desire of Ages about what's happening here. It says, as they approached the garden, this is page 685, as Jesus and his disciples approached the garden of Gethsemane, the disciples marked the change that came over their master. Never before had they seen him so utterly sad and silent. As he proceeded, this strange sadness deepened, yet they dared not question him as to the cause. His form swayed as if he were about to fall. Every step that he now took was with labored effort. He groaned aloud as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. Twice his companions supported him or he would have fallen to the earth. So as Jesus was getting closer to, to Gethsemane, he starts swaying back and forth. 
And the disciples uh, have to hold on to him or he's going to fall down. And it says that the reason for this was that uh, there, was a, there was a pressure of a burden that was uh, being laid upon him that he was beginning to experience that was absolutely terrible. Now, listen to this. It says, Christ was now standing, this is page 686, Christ was now standing in a different attitude from that in which he had ever stood before. His suffering can best be described in the words of the prophet. And then it quotes a verse in the Old Testament. Now, I want to take a look at this closely. Do you all, do you all have your Bibles open to Matthew 26, verse 31? Take a look at this verse. Let's do some real digging right now, and let's discover something that's very, very powerful. When Jesus said in verse 31, all of you shall be offended because of, this, because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd. Jesus is obviously quoting a Bible verse here. It is written. And then the verse says, I will smite the shepherd. Now, when Jesus said it is written, I don't know how many of you have marginal references or not in your Bibles, but where, where was the original verse that he was quoting from found? That's right, Zechariah 13, 7. Keep your finger here in Matthew and go back to Zechariah. It's a little book, sometimes a little hard to find. I think it's about four books before the end of the Old Testament. Jesus, the night before he died, quoted the book of Zechariah. See if I've got that right. How many books, books is it? Haggai, Zechariah. Okay. I don't remember exactly how many books it is, but it's it's pretty clear. I think it's is it right before Malachi? That's it. Okay, two books before the end: Malachi, and then before that is Zechariah. Now look at chapter thirteen, and look at verse seven. Verse seven starts out with one word, and what's that word? Awake, wake up. That's right. May God help us all to wake up to the reality of what we are about to read. Awake, O sword, it says, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd. And that's the verse that Jesus is quoting in Matthew 26. Now, this is very amazing. Let me read to you again the statement in Desire of Ages, page 686. It says that Jesus' suffering can best be described in the words of the prophet. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. And she's quoting Zechariah 13.7. So in Desire of Ages 686, Ellen White says that the sufferings of Jesus that he went through are best described more than any other place in the Bible, the best description of Christ's suffering is found in Zechariah 13.7. And Zechariah 13.7 describes the awakening of a sword that was to fall upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. Now, what is this talking about? What does this mean? Uh, let me read a little bit more. Ellen White continues on, on page 686 of Desire of Ages. 
And she says, as the substitute and surety for sinful man, Christ was suffering under divine justice. That's what she calls it, divine justice. Hitherto, no, I'm sorry. Uh, he was suffering under divine justice. He saw what justice meant. Hitherto, he had been an intercessor for others, but now he longed to have an intercessor for himself. God's Amazing Grace, page 168, says the sword of justice was unsheathed and the wrath of God against iniquity rested upon man's substitute, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. Desire of Ages, page 686. As a man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. Uh, Ellen White's very clear that the sword referred to the sword of, of justice. She calls it divine justice. And she says that when Jesus looked at that sword, he saw what justice meant. He, understand what it, he understood what it meant. Uh, here's another quote from Great Controversy, page 558. It says, love is often dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God, but it is degraded to a weak sentimentalism, making little distinction between good and evil. God's justice, his denunciations of sin, the requirements of his holy law are all kept out of sight. Satan definitely doesn't want us to understand the mercy of God, neither does he want us to understand the justice of God. And what basically happened to me, and I don't know how many of you have, have uh, if, if any of you have read a book that I wrote called From Hollywood to Heaven. Anybody read From Hollywood to Heaven? Okay, you've read it. Anybody else read it? It's, uh, it's, it's really my story of how I became a Christian. And it's, it's kind of a long story, and I'm not going to tell you, I'll just tell you just a little bit of it, which you probably know, is that I didn't grow up in the church, didn't grow up as Seventh-day Adventist, grew up Jewish, secular Jew, grew up in the Hollywood area, and just really never read the Bible at all until I was 20 years old. Didn't know anything about the Bible, never went to church, didn't go to synagogue, um, wasn't baptized, wasn't bar mitzvahed. I was just kind of like a renegade kid Growing up and as a teenager, I was just surrounded by Hollywood. The music started pulling on my heart and I started getting into soft rock and then hard rock and then heavy metal. Black Sabbath was one of my big groups that I used to listen to. You ever heard of Black Sabbath? Did you know that all the Black Sabbath boys were all uh, Seventh-day Adventists? They all, they all grew up Seventh-day Adventists and they all left the church. And then they changed their, their, they gave the name of their group Black Sabbath to show that they've just, you know, they've rejected the Sabbath. And their music is very, uh, it's very dark and very depressing. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, it's heavy, heavy metal. They've got one song called Children of the Grave. And I used to listen to this a lot, Children of the Grave. And at the ba on the back of one of their albums, they have a picture of three angels smoking cigarettes and playing cards. And that's their way of mocking the three angels' messages. And these are groups that I used to listen to. And a lot of other groups like Queen and Kiss and uh, Electric Light Orchestra and ZZ Top and Jethro Tull and Aerosmith and just the list goes on and on. I was really into rock and roll and also into, into marijuana. I started smoking marijuana when I was 14. Got into smoking pot and smoked pot every day, just about for about six years. And then started uh, using other drugs, started taking quaaludes, popping quaaludes. 
and started uh, snorting cocaine, uh, took LSD a few times, smoked something called angel dust, which is very, very dangerous. It can blow your mind right out by, and if I would have been alive uh, doing drugs during a time when people were using meth, you know, I probably would have gotten into meth and I'd be gone. And so that was the life that I lived as a teenager. And I started going to the disco, started dancing, started staying out till three in the morning, and just getting into some things in the Hollywood area that were just really, really, really dangerous. I remember picking up a guy uh, once and he offered me some, he wanted to sell me some cocaine. And then he, uh, he pointed from underneath his shirt, and I never saw it, but he said it was a gun. And he said, if you don't give me money, I'm going to kill you. And this was like at 2 in the morning, you know, way down in Hollywood. And eventually, you know, he left and he didn't shoot me. If he even had a gun, I don't know. But it's, you know, it's amazing that I survived those days. I mean, I could have easily been, been killed. Um, one night I was at a rock concert and <clears throat> with a buddy of mine at about 4 in the morning, I was driving him home both of us home back in from L.A. to the San Fernando Valley. <clears throat> and uh, we were so drunk, and I was driving, that instead of ending up going over the hill into the valley, we ended up in Santa Monica at the beach. And it's like 4 in the morning, and we pull into a parking lot, and we looked through the window, and we saw the ocean waves. And we looked at each other, and we thought, where in the world are we? We're at the beach. What are we doing at the beach? We're supposed to be going back to Studio City in North Hollywood. Here we are ending up in Santa Monica. You know, I don't know how I got home that, that night. I have friends of mine that, that overdosed on uh, quaaludes. One girl, Lisa Cordero, killed herself, overdosed and died. Michael Prey drank too much uh, alcohol, developed liver problems, and he died. And it's amazing that I didn't die. And so this is all, this is the kind of life that I was living as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old. And it's a long story. This is all in my book, From Hollywood to Heaven, but eventually, or at least a lot of it, not all of it. But eventually, I turned on the TV one day, saw George Vandeman talking about the Bible Sabbath. He sent me a book in the mail. I read the book cover to cover. At the bottom of the book, it, it encouraged me to go find a Seventh-day Adventist church. I found an Adventist and basically invited myself to church. Walked up to him and reached out my hand and introduced myself to him and said, uh, would it be okay if I went to church with you some Saturday? And he said, sure. And so he brought me to church, to the Canoga Park Seventh-day Adventist Church, 19, in the fall of 1979. I met the pastor. His name was Pastor J.B. Church, an older man, really nice guy. He brought me into his office, sat me down, said, how'd you find my church? Who are you? And so I started telling him a little bit of the details, and then he reached onto his bookshelf behind him, pulled out a copy of The Desire of Ages, handed it to me, and said, read this book. Go take it home and read the book. And when I read The Desire of Ages, uh, cover to cover, by the time I was done with that book, I was a new, I was a new person. Amen. My whole life had changed. I just gave up the drugs, gave up the discos. In, that day, in those days, I think we were still using eight-track tapes and, and records, albums. And I broke my albums, threw away my eight-track tapes, got rid of all my heavy metal stuff, got rid of my drugs, and I, it was all just behind me. That was it. I was done. And the reason why I was done was because one primary thing, there was one thing more than anything that got my heart. And it's in Matthew chapter 26. Let's go back to Matthew 26 and I'll tell you what it was. 
the one thing that reached me, I read Desire of Ages, I read about Jesus' birth, I read about his baptism, I read about his healings, his miracles. I was captivated by the story of this man. But it wasn't until I got to chapter 74 in, in Desire of Ages. Now, I'm going to Matthew chapter 26. But it wasn't until I got to Desire of Ages chapter 74, which was based on in Matthew chapter 26. That's what did it for me. And I read this verse in verse 31 that Jesus said to them, all you shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd. Who's the I? Who is the I? The I is the Father. That's right. And it says, he will smite. He will smite the shepherd. And who's the shepherd? Jesus. So this is described the Father smiting the Son. What is this talk? What is this about? What can this be about? Ellen White describes it to the falling of the sword of justice, that the sword of justice was unsheathed and that it fell upon Jesus. I will smite the shepherd, the text says. Verse 36 says, Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray yonder. Chapter 74 in Desire of Ages is called Gethsemane. It has a one-word title. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then he said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even till death. Tarry here and watch with me. And he went a little farther, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, and he said, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this what? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So here Jesus is described as struggling over whether he's going to drink a cup or not. What was in that cup? That's right, the wine of the wrath of God without mixture of mercy as described in the third angel's message. That's exactly what it was. Um, in Desire of Ages, page 687, this is what it says. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. Do you see that? Page 686, as a man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. Now it's true that in this chapter, Ellen White also describes the father separating his beams of light and love from his beloved son. But it's also true that this process of what Jesus was going through is also described as a sword falling down on him. 
We read that in Zechariah. And Ellen White says that that is the best description that we can find of Christ's suffering is the sword. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And when you read these verses and read this statement here uh, from God's Amazing Grace, page 168, the sword of justice was unsheathed and the wrath of God against iniquity rested upon man's substitute, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. Now, the language here is not language that simply describes God turning his back and allowing his son to reap the natural consequences of sin. That's not the full expression of this language. This language also is active in its terminology. It describes a sword being awakened and coming down. Ellen White describes the wrath of God um, falling upon him as man's substitute and surety. She describes the sense of God's wrath against sin as crushing out his life. And when I was 20 years old, with my marijuana-infested mind, I read Gethsemane in Desire of Ages. I read these quotes. I looked at the pictures in the book that showed Jesus' suffering in the garden. And as I looked at all of this, I saw what I saw was an incredible manifestation of mercy, love, and justice all woven into one scene. The mercy was obvious to me because here was, here was Jesus suffering and going through this for me. So I saw the mercy. What about the justice? Did I see the justice? I did. I saw the justice of God coming down on him because of sin. And so I saw both. And, and here I am, uh, you know, I was not a theologian. I hadn't been to the seminary. I didn't have a knowledge of Greek. I, I uh, didn't know anything about the character of God controversy that's going on within the Seventh-day Adventist church about God's wrath and about his justice. I didn't know anything about the interpretations that make God's wrath mean that it's not wrath at all, that it's, justly, uh, it's just divine withdrawal. I didn't know any, any about, anything about any of that. All I knew was what I was reading right in front of my face. And I looked at Jesus in Gethsemane, and I saw the mercy, and I saw the justice, and I saw the cup, and I saw him wrestling with this decision, and he prayed, Father, if there's any way, please take this cup from me. And I saw him suffering over this, and I looked at that, and I thought, wow. Why is he going through all this? And I realized that he was doing it for me. And this is what penetrated my life. I do not believe, at least from my perspective, that my heart could have been reached by just showing me mercy. I don't think that was enough. It was the combination of mercy combined with justice in the Garden of Gethsemane that reached my heart. I saw the mercy reaching out to me, 
and I saw the justice falling. And when I read about God's justice falling upon Christ and the sense of God's wrath against sin crushing out his life, I didn't look at this and think to myself, my God, God must be mean. God must be a tyrant. God must be an arbitrary, exacting, tyrannical being who sends his justice upon his own son. That thought never entered my mind. And there are some people, once they've been infected by a theology, and I'm going to talk very plainly to you right now, once the mind has been infected by a theology that says that it is contrary to the character of God to punish sin, which is what we read uh, yesterday in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 95, that that was one of the delusions before the flood from the wise men. The wise men before the flood, they looked at the crowd and they said, you don't need to go into the ark because there's not going to be a flood. God's not going to destroy the world. Even though the Bible says, God says, I will destroy man. I will destroy this world. God specifically says, I'm going to do it. And what they said, what the wise men said was, it's impossible. He can't do it because it's contrary to the character of God to punish sin. That was their view. And once a person has been infected, and I call it an infection, and it's gotten deep in their mind that, that the character of God is such that he cannot punish sin directly because that's just not the way he is. Uh, once the mind has been infected by that, it is almost impossible for them to read statements about the justice of God and to take those statements literally without coming to the conclusion that if those statements are true, then God is a monster. They just can't see it. They, they, their view is that in order for God not to be a monster, he must not have it within his character to punish sin. And once they're convinced of that, it's very difficult to get a person to see otherwise. Very difficult. They've just got this in their mind. Wrath is not wrath. Justice is not justice. It's all natural consequences. God just turns his back. <clears throat> and um, when I first read Desire of Ages in 1979, I did not have these ideas in my head. I had never heard of, of uh, any of this controversy going on. And I just read the Garden of Gethsemane chapter at face value. And I saw Jesus' love. I saw his mercy. And I saw his justice. And, and I didn't interpret that justice as being uh, wicked, as being bad. I just looked at it and realized, wow, here is the Son of God suffering for me because he loves me. And in order to give me his mercy, He's taking my justice. It was really that simple. My sins, he was taking the justice of God against sin, which was my own sin. And I, and I saw that. I saw, wow, Jesus loves me so much that he took my justice so he could give me his mercy. See that? And it, it penetrated me. Now, um, I'm going to push my button here and show you a couple slides that have only deepened my appreciation of this chapter. Let me see if I've got what I'm thinking about. Oh, yeah, there it is. All right, now, guess who that is? 
those two little kids. Those are my children. And that's a fairly recent picture. Uh, Seth is now six, and Abby is three. And they, generally, they get along really well. <laughs> In the morning, uh, they wake up, and, and Seth will say to Abby, Abby, I want my good morning hug. And sometimes Abby will give it to him, and sometimes she'll say, no. <laughs> and she won't give it to him. But usually she does. And they get along pretty good. And as far as my wife and I, we couldn't love two kids more than we love our own. Here's another, uh, another picture of them. Seth likes to read. He's a great reader at six years old. Incredible. He's in the first grade, but his reading level is in the second grade. And he reads to her from different books. Uh, there he is when he was just a real little guy, when he was just a, maybe not even two, first learning how to pray. And, you know, if you, when you grow up and you have kids, and when you get married and you have kids, uh, there's nothing that can touch your heart more than having your, your little child first start to pray. And when Seth first started to pray, he couldn't say his J's. He couldn't say Jesus, so he would... He said, uh, dear Gigas, it was just his G's. Dear Gigas, bless mommy, bless daddy, you know, amen. And, and I thought about, I took that picture of him praying, and I thought about that little picture of him praying. And I've kind of, in my mind, compared that picture to the Garden of Gethsemane. And now that I'm a dad, and I have this little boy and this little girl, you know, I've tried to imagine what it would be like if my children came up to me one day and, and, and prayed and looked at me and said, Daddy, Daddy, please take this cup from me. I don't want to drink this cup. Because if I drink this cup, Daddy, we'll be separated. And I don't want to drink this cup. And I thought to myself, how would, what would I say if my little boy came to me and said, Daddy, please take this cup away from me. Because if I, don't drink, if I do drink this cup, you know, our relationship is going to seem like it's over. What would I say as a father? How would I relate to that? It would be very, very difficult for me to um, allow him to go through this because I loved somebody else a lot. And really, that's what the father and the son did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the father allowed his son to go through this because he loves you and he loves me. And when I read these statements, now here, here's a statement here in God's Amazing Grace, page 168. And I, I think that we should take our shoes off before this statement. Just like Moses God said to him, take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. And I'm saying that figuratively. I don't think, you know, I'm not asking you to take your shoes off. Now, although you already got your shoes off, don't you? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, my conviction is that the only way for us to understand God and the truth of the Bible and the truth of the third angel's message is for us to let God teach us that truth. Instead of trying to create truth ourselves, because nothing else makes sense to us except seeing it this way, I don't think that's the proper way for us to be learning about, about Jesus. I think the way for us to learn the truth about Jesus is to let Jesus teach us himself.
from inspired statements. And here's a statement in God's Amazing Grace, page 168, that I want to just carefully read and hopefully impress you with. And I, I don't want, you know, hopefully by the grace of God, you will not rise up against this statement. Hopefully people that listen to this on audio verse uh, won't rise up against this statement, but that they will submit to it and listen to it and let it penetrate their hearts. And here it is, God's Amazing Grace, page 168. Ellen White wrote, no sorrow can bear any comparison with the sorrow of him upon whom the wrath of God fell with overwhelming force. See that? Does that sound entirely like a passive act to you? Not to me. Not to me. I don't think we should just, we should, I don't think we should be playing around with God's wrath. I don't think we should be playing around with interpreting wrath in a way that's not biblical, that's not really what God intends. Neither do I think we should uh, interpret God's wrath as tyranny and, and, and as if he's a monster. That is, uh, that's a perversion of truth. God's wrath, according to the Bible, is the manifestation of divine justice. It's the manifestation of pure justice. And in Gethsemane, it fell without a drop of mercy. But the reason why it did was because it, it flowed from a heart that was full of mercy. It's God's mercy that moved him to set up a plan with his son so that his justice would fall upon his son instead of on you and instead of on me. See that? The wrath of God, it says, fell with overwhelming force upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said, it is written, I will smite the shepherd. Ellen White said that that verse is the best description of his suffering in the Bible. And that verse goes back to Zechariah 13.7 that says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And Ellen White interprets that sword to be the sword of justice. Again, Jesus saw what justice meant. He understood it. And he knew that God's justice is justice against evil. If God's justice is tyranny, then it's not justice, is it? It's not just. The question is, is it really just or isn't it? Is God just or isn't he? Can God, here's the question, can God himself punish sin and still be just in doing it? See that? Can he? Or is it contrary to the character of God to punish sin? Like they said, like the wise men said before the flood. It's very clear to me what the Bible teaches. And Jesus wrestled with this in Gethsemane. 
And my heart appreciates this more now that I've got children myself. But like I said, back in 1979, when I read about the Garden of Gethsemane and I saw Jesus suffering under divine justice and that justice falling upon him, that is what reached my heart. I don't believe we can reach the heart of this generation with just a message of mercy alone. It has to be combined with the message of justice. They have to go together. And the third angel's message is a warning about mercy running out and justice kicking in. And the reason why that message is, is uh, legitimate in the eyes of the universe and the reason why we can give that message with credibility in the last days is because that message takes you back to Gethsemane and shows us that God himself was willing to take the justice upon himself first in order to give us his mercy. And it's those that reject his mercy and his justice that will eventually have the wrong ideas about the character of God. Their minds will be more susceptible to the mark of the beast. And then they will be more likely to end up receiving justice without mercy at the end of the world. Does that make sense? And that's what the third angel's message is all about. And as I've mentioned, it goes right back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus prayed in the garden in verse 39, when it says that he prayed, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here's the, another verse on the screen from a different, I think it's from Luke, where Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. That was the final conclusion of his prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. There was no mixture of self in Jesus' response. He surrendered fully to his father. And I'm convinced that the goal of the third angel's message is to take us to the garden and take us to the cross and motivate us to make a similar decision in our lives to finally say, not my will, but your will be done. If Jesus was willing to take our justice, to give us his mercy, what is more powerful of a revelation to realize that the sins of the whole world were on him and the pure justice of God against sin fell on him so that he could then give us his mercy so we could live forever? What's more powerful? And, that, and God's design is what happened to me in 1979, is to reveal this to us and then get us to make a choice. And the choice is, I surrender my life to you, not my will, but your will be done. And that's what happened to me when I read this uh, in 1979. I saw all this. I saw the mercy. I saw the love. I saw the justice. I saw a balanced, biblical, and powerful perspective on the character of God. And it reached me, and it led me to make a decision and to say, not my will, but your will be done. And it was after I read this about Gethsemane that I made my choice. I said, no more Black Sabbath. 
No more Aerosmith. No more Queen. No more Kiss. No more marijuana. No more cocaine. No more bongs. No more uh, angel dust. No more hash. No more honey oil. No more discos. None of that. I don't want any of that anymore. I want Jesus more than I want any of these things. I see something more attractive in Christ than I found in the world. And sometime right after that revelation, I got on my knees and I prayed a prayer. I don't remember exactly what the words were, but I prayed something like this, I, something like, dear Jesus, I believe you're real. Forgive me for my sins, for the sins that you suffered for in the garden, for the sins that you took the justice of God you know, for against those sins, my sins, and take them out of me. Forgive me, take them out of me, and come into my life and change, change my heart. Change my heart. And when I prayed that prayer, I distinctly remember this uh, weight of guilt lifted off of me. And I distinctly remember experiencing this wonderful sense of peace that flowed into my heart like I had never known before. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this is better than drugs. This is better than cocaine. You know, snorting cocaine. This is, this is, this is fabulous. And uh, that was it. That was when I was converted. And I'm just trying to tell you, you know, I was converted because of a revelation focused in the Garden of Gethsemane, a revelation that combined mercy and justice rooted in love. And I didn't rise up against it. I didn't question it. I didn't challenge it. I didn't say, it can't, that can't be true. It's got to be a different way. I just saw it, and I thought, my, oh, my, if the Son of God was willing to bear my justice, to give me his mercy, I want him to be my Savior. And I am fully convinced that it is only the biblical, balanced message of the character of God, his mercy and his justice rooted in his love, that is really going to lighten the earth with its glory. It's the only thing that's going to really accomplish the goal of the third angel's message. Revelation 3.20 says, Jesus says, If any man hears my voice and opens the door, Jesus said, I will come in. And that's what I did. I let him in. And I hope that you will too, <laughs> and that everybody listening to this will do too. Uh, God is good. He's a good God. His mercy is good. His justice is good. His love is good. His plan of salvation is good. His warning in the third angel's message is good. What he did in Gethsemane and on the cross is good. It's very good. And he did it for you and for me. That's what it's all about. So may God help us to, um, to be touched by this and to say, Lord, if you did this for me, not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. Jesus, 
Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for what you have shown us in the Bible and in the writings of Ellen White. And Lord, we are in a, in a controversy. We're in a battle where the devil is trying to twist your attributes and pervert your attributes and infect our minds with falsehood about who you really are. And Lord, we pray, please help us not to be deceived. Help us to understand, to take off our shoes, so to speak. We're on holy ground and to let you reveal to us your own character so that it can be written in our minds and in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.